They're having some technical difficulties, so we can't run the video as we usually do for the reading, but that's okay. Have no fear. I come prepared because right here with my sermon, I've got the scripture reading as well. So let us hear now the reading of the scripture, which is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 11. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you believed. Thus ends the reading. When I chose the passage today for the sermon, I read it through several times. And then I just kind of sat with it for a while, praying on it, pondering what it said. I not only considered what Paul's words seem to be saying about God, but I also considered what Paul's words seem to be saying about Paul and about his life, his faith, his foundation for believing in Christ and living for Christ. An interesting thing happened to me when I prayed and meditated on verse 10 where it says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me has not been in vain. The refrain of a famous hymn came to my head and I found myself singing it at that time kind of as a prayer of thankfulness to God. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. I began to picture just how completely Paul's soul must have been filled with gratitude each day because of the grace of God. Paul could have gone a different way in his thinking, in his living. He could have lost hope, but he did not. He could have completely spiraled into thinking that there is no way on this earth that the risen Christ could forgive him, considering the ways that Paul, before his experience on the road to Damascus, had been persecuting Christian believers. But he did not give up. And that's because he had a laser focus on something. And that something is the grace of God. 
Paul relied on one thing and one thing only, the grace of God. And to him, that was epitomized in the crucified Christ. But more than that, also the resurrected Christ. No wonder he related so much to the teaching that was handed down to him and to which he dedicated his life to teaching to others who wanted to grow in grace and love. It was the message that Christ gave the ultimate sacrifice for us, the complete expression of grace, and it was completely effective in bringing about our redemption. Paul proclaimed the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has the power to bring us to the very center of Christ's redeeming love, extending God's ultimate grace. And the fact that Christ was raised from the dead and that he appeared to numerous witnesses in his resurrected form proves for Paul and can prove for us as well that when we place our hope in Christ, it is not misplaced. It is not ineffectual. It's not a made-up story. It's not a myth like we heard about in the children's sermon today. It's a real event with real power in the lives and in the hearts and the souls of believers. So that led me to thinking and praying some more, and I got to thinking about a different hymn, one that gets in my head in the best of ways, partly because it's the Nettleton tune that will stick in my head. A good earworm, you might say. But the name of the hymn is Come Thou Font of Every Blessing, which we read the words to and sang to the music a few minutes ago. When I considered the life of Paul, I started thinking especially about the words from that hymn that go like this. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, Seal it for thy courts above. I got this feeling in my soul that it must have been like that for the Apostle Paul, don't you think? Here he was, a man called by God, and he was given the crucial responsibility of helping to guide some of the earliest churches. And many times, he got caught in a quagmire dealing with all the kinds of sticky, messy, contentious situations that would occur in those congregations. We've talked about some of those as we've progressed through this unit, this series of sermons on 1 Corinthians. They were trying to figure out how to do life together, right? But I think perhaps the key to Paul being able to stay focused and to keep from giving up is that he knew his heart had been sealed by the saving grace of God through the redeeming and sacrificial love of Jesus Christ the Lord. When you've been changed from within by the grace of God, you do not need to think of yourself as hopeless or incorrigible. And you find that you do not see others in that way either. In our day and in our society, I don't think we tend to really spend too much time thinking about a need for being redeemed. We don't like to think of the possibility that maybe we can't make it on our own. You mean we might have to rely on others? Oh, what a horrible thought. You mean we can't do it all ourselves? 
it seems that we're prone to think about our asserting of independence. And we're concerned about congratulating ourselves for, you might say, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Maybe even when it comes to talking about us being redeemed. Now, if you're weird like me, and especially if you're a curious person like me, then maybe sometimes you go ahead and you actually look up those possible stories behind such odd phrases, such as the bootstrap comment, right? I love looking up the etymology of such things. At least according to some sources, the phrase probably dates back to at least the late 1800s. So that makes sense, because perhaps boots tended to be a little more commonly worn than they would be today, right? One source says that it may have started as a silly expression of something that would be impossible. If you have your boots on, and you start yanking on your bootstraps while you're standing on the ground, the only thing that would happen is that sooner or later a pesky little thing called gravity will take over, right? If all you do is pull at your bootstraps, you're going to stay put exactly where you are. You, in fact, cannot make yourself levitate. So, in fact, the saying itself seems to indicate how delusional such a point of view really is, that you can do it all on your own. It's a nonsense statement that illustrates how nonsensical that point of view is. Instead, perhaps you can pull yourself up by grabbing on to something solid, or you can push off from something solid, or someone can put out their hand and help you up. Those are all possibilities. Some people even think that this saying came out of a story about a character who was able to pull himself up out of a swamp when he pulled on his own hair. Again, nope. <laughs> I don't see how that's going to work. But that's exactly my point here. It doesn't work, does it? Acknowledgement of the grace of God means realizing that we can't do it all by ourselves. We must rely on the goodness of God, grace. Anything else is just nonsense. And I think this is what it means to really be at a point in our journey of faith where we can experience the sealing of our hearts by God. It's then that we realize what it is that we really bring to the table of the Lord. We bring our broken selves. We bring our broken hearts, our broken promises, our failed attempts to impress others and ourselves, or maybe our misled notions that gathering up materialistic things in this world would somehow make us happy. There are lots of things we bring, but mostly I think the thing that we bring is our trust. It's only when we decide to lay down all that nonsense that our hearts are truly ready to be marked, to be sealed by the redeeming love of God. Some scholars feel that Paul, of course, being someone who would have been well familiar with how classic rhetoric in the art of persuasion works, chose the topic of the final part of this letter to the Corinthians in a very intentional way. In other words, he arranged it so that it's likely he was trying to basically frame his admonitions, persuasions, and advice 
by having some of the most quintessential and fundamentally important parts toward the beginning and toward the end of this epistle. So we can certainly deduce that one of the most important parts of Paul's belief system is the topic of, you guessed it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's where we are as a topic in chapter 15, for sure. It's the very core of what gives Paul hope for daily living. It's what gave him the courage to face quite dangerous situations, even persecution and imprisonment. He went through shipwreck, you name it. But he was able to maintain his resolve to preach Christ crucified and Christ risen. And one thing about rhetoric is that what a person is claiming to be true needs to come from reliable sources. And in the case of our Bible passage for today, Paul relates to his readers the examples of the numerous encounters people had with the risen Jesus, even mentioning that he had appeared to more than 500 people. Now that's a witness testimony that has a lot of corroboration. In other words, I think Paul wanted people to be reminded that what they base their faith in and their hope in is not just a wish or a pipe dream or a myth. It is true and reliable. It's something that's factual and it's life-changing. I think we can see in the ways that Paul appeals to the believers he's writing to that it really amounts to kind of an unofficial creed here. It reads like a creed, too. It's a direct statement about what he believes based upon what has been passed down to him, tradition, as well as what he himself deems to be true. Doctrinal statements, right? Clearly, he doesn't just leave it as a statement of belief for only the community of Christian believers. Life together as a community is a key element, no doubt. But he also goes right into explaining how he personally has been transformed by the real-life truth contained in such a creed. At verse 2 of chapter 15, which of course would be just one verse right before our passage for today, Paul stated that it is by the gospel that his readers are saved, so they must hold firmly to that which has been given to them as the gospel message. Paul knows that even if there are lots of problems and issues and maybe even battles and separations and schisms, you name it, in the life of the church, hope is not lost. Because our hope is in something, or I should say someone, who is not lost, and that's Christ. This is very similar, I think, to what he tells the Philippians when he wrote that God who began such a work in them will see it to completion. God is always trustworthy, faithful, and true to the promise upon which we have placed our beliefs. And that promise is in Christ, Paul says. Furthermore, Paul wants his readers to know that he's not just resting on the laurels of grace, not just being lazy because, after all, God's love and goodness and grace will take care of everything, such that he can be idle in his walk of faith. Heavens, no. 
He says that no one has worked harder than he. But even then, he quickly catches himself and says, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul doesn't want to claim glory for something that's not his to claim. That would ruin, I think, his whole argument in the first place, since he has often reminded the Corinthian believers not to get stuck in their own bragging, taking enjoyment from self-aggrandizement. Perhaps in a parallel way, I think maybe we can picture what Paul is getting at here when we think about the ways that we, in English, talk about two very distinct definitions of the word vain, the kind of vain that's spelled V-A-I-N. On the one hand, Paul said that he celebrates the fact that the grace which God has given him has not been in vain. His life has been fruitful, and he doesn't want to squander the grace of God that's been given to him. He wants to respond to the grace of God by being committed to making a difference in the kingdom of God. However, he very quickly, right there in the same verse, number 10, also says that it wasn't he himself who did these things to be proud of. No, it's always been God's work of grace in him and with him. In other words, he reminds himself and his readers that he has no intention of getting caught up in the trap of being vain. He doesn't want his life to be something that is in vain, that is, bearing no fruit, but he also doesn't want to be worried about getting human praise and therefore end up being vain. I really think that Paul's absolute resolve, his determination that nothing will ever, ever change, his belief in the hope of salvation through Christ, I think it must have been truly a contagious thing to those that he tried to advise in the early Christian churches. Don't you think? He was completely sold on the absolute power that Christ has to forgive, to redeem, to equip someone for sharing love in the world. And he believed with his whole heart that even our greatest weaknesses will indeed become our biggest strengths when we've been transformed by the redeeming love of Christ. I can relate to that. Perhaps you can too. Because for many of us, we can proclaim without a doubt that Christ has loved and forgiven and empowered us. And it was never something that we ourselves did that made it happen. And now that it has happened in us, that saving love of Jesus Christ, then there is no way we would ever think of wasting all of that grace by not taking seriously our call to get out there and start loving people the way that Christ loves people. And so, when I don't have all the answers to the spiritually troubling things that get to working on my soul, it's okay. Really? Why? Because I am already sealed. I am forever marked by the saving love of God. Like Paul, I have been claimed by Jesus, and I will one day see the full glory of Jesus face to face 
like it says in that famous hymn, Here's my heart, O take and 